Welcome and happy Friday. This is Travelog, the podcast of Condé Nast Traveler. We are here in the podcast studios at Condé Nast with Mark Elwood, who's a contributing editor and a podcast producer. Say hi, Mark. Hello. You've been away for a while. I have been away for a while, but I'm back. Welcome back. And Sebastian Modak, Lali Arikoglu, and Andrea Whittle, all of whom are editors for Traveler. And the topic of the week this week is one of our favorites because we just get to talk about fun stuff. It's what we did with our summer vacations. Mark, yours aren't officially vacations, right? <laughs> right? No, mine are. I actually do have some vacations. You know, we're lucky enough to get paid to travel and to pay to travel, and I did a mixture of both this summer. <laughs> not feeling like the second one yeah, is so long. There's, there's kind of sort of <laughs> false equivalency going on. We still there. get to go places. It's still ever. It's amazing to go places, and whether I'm paying or being paid, one of the things I love most about travel is you. You're entitled to have an informed opinion. So I do love to pay for it because then I can say, I think this place is X and I can say it in an informed way. Mm. Well, so we're going to tell you guys, you listening public out there, all about where we've been and we're going to give you tips uh, about those places and how awesome they were. Or if they weren't awesome, we'll tell you that too. You can save that. So I don't know where's a good place to start here because we have some overlap. Seb, you were out in the Bay Area it sounds like. Briefly, yeah. What were you doing in the Bay Area? That was just my July 4th weekend, which was very nice. My parents live abroad, and so we kind of just, when I do see them, it's usually once or twice a year, we find a place to hang out. And this year, my brother lives out in Oakland, so we chose the Bay Area, and we did a lot of driving around. Um, How was the know, weather? It was perfect, actually, yeah. There was one day in San Francisco proper, which, you know, got the whole gray and drizzly, but for the most part, Especially outside, it was uh, it was beautiful. It was sunny. It was blue skies. Are you familiar with that part of the world? I wouldn't say familiar. I mean, the last time I'd gone was probably college days, so two thousand six or something. Two thousand fifteen. Not that young, Brad. Um, but yeah, it was great. It was it was a you know it's a different kind of vacation with family and doing the whole family thing. Where you know, do you like traveling with your parents? Uh, yes, I do. My yeah. Yes, yes, he does. <laughs> my no. mother listens to this podcast. I do very, very much indeed. No, no, but um, there's a difference. I think, I think if you're independent enough to travel a lot overseas on your own, it's a very different rhythm. It's challenging that you return for sure. to, and you you sort of have to curtail some of the things you've learned to tackle. Yeah. And how do you find joy in? Does it feel infantilizing? You know, I I couldn't travel with my parents anymore. I mean. Well, I'm, here's here's the interesting thing, and I think we've talked about this on other podcasts about you know group travel and traveling with family. There's a switch that goes on at a certain age, and I've passed that age where you know it used to be my parents planning every step of the journey for me and my brothers. Now it's us trying to plan every step of the journey for my parents so that they don't have to start stressing out or you know agonizing over choices about should we eat here or should we eat there. It's like nope, my brother who lives in Oakland has planned every minute of your day so you just have to ride with it and uh that's it and i found that when we do that now it's a lot more of an enjoyable experience i would agree with that and also because of where we work that's true too. i feel yeah. like people are sort of like why am i looking at the map you tell me where <laughs> but don't you love being in charge i know this says more i know this will you know astonish you as a former tour guide i love being told I don't know what to do. Why don't you plan the trip? Because then you get to do everything you want to do. I, I, I like it only because they're super malleable and they have no idea what they want. So I get to just decide. And they know they're not going to complain because they wouldn't know if it was terrible. Wait till your son starts doing that for you. Where he's like, Dad, so I got it booked. Do as you're told. I'll be pretty happy about that. So, Seb, what are the takeaways? Like, what was your favorite thing? Did you hear thing. music? You usually hear music where you go. See, that's something I don't necessarily do when I'm traveling with family. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're not as interested in like the no shitty, elbow room the shitty hardcore club yeah. as I am. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the best things I did, I think, were nature oriented. You know, it was especially coming from New York after having not taken a vacation for a while by that point and kind of just escaping the urban. I've been, you know, I've taken weekend trips to upstate New York and things like that, but it's different to just go into a very kind of foreign natural world which you get at like the, you know, the Redwoods. And, and one of the biggest discoveries for me was, uh, I think it's called Armstrong Park. It has, you know, this huge concentration of Redwoods, which are just uh, mind boggling. It's very close to uh, Russian River in that area. Uh -huh. um, so it's pretty far north. Yeah, yeah. And we, we took a long drive out there and kind of just had a picnic there. And it was like every 
picture I've seen and experiences I've heard from like the major parks that have these giant towering redwoods are that it's beautiful, but it's also just swarmed with people, especially during July 4th weekend, I expected. And this was, you know, scattered crowds, but we mostly had it all to ourselves. Didn't you find the magnificent? I will say, you know, as people who listen to this podcast before will know that the word greenery kind of brings me out in hives, but... The enormous redwoods are so magnificent in a kind of jaw-dropping way that you cannot not respond to them. It's the most incredible thing. Yeah, and it's funny that you say that because... Muir Woods is the one that I used to go to every every now and then. It's a little closer to the city, I think, than, than you don't have to go all the way up to the Russian River. But um, but again, you know what it reminded me of, Mark? When I went into Sagrada Familia, I had been to Muir Woods and a couple of other redwood spots where you just have these enormous trees. Mm. And inside Sagrada Familia, which is based on, it, it is intended to be like a forest. And that That's was what so it felt. It, it, the resonance between those two things. I, think, I didn't is, know that Sagrada Familia was based, was sort of inspired or I mean, by churches, by, of course. Yeah, but, but by a forest. A, I can see that. Yeah. yeah. People think of Gaudi as, we're off topic, but we, people think of Gaudi as being sort of gothic and creepy. And it's actually all uh, plant inspired. Well, it's very like Susian in that way. Right, yeah. the same way that he kind of portrayed plants as these psychedelic. Yeah, things, totally, you know. totally. That's the thing about the scale of the redwoods is it's so big that it's kind of absurd. There's a sort of crazy quality to it, you know, which is interesting. Yeah, that was a highlight for sure. I did not, I, you know, I'd heard about them my whole life, but I did not expect to be just so just have my jaw hit the floor in that way. I'm curious if there's anyone who knows the redwood forest really well who can tell us the kind of secret places you can go even when it's busy to have that quiet experience. It's I know Muir Woods, I know I used to write guidebooks to that area and I didn't I'd not have Armstrong, but I'd love to know if there are any Bay Area people or sort of redwood aficionados <laughs> who can give us the scoop because I would love to know a guaranteed place to sort of have that quiet moment because it is incredible especially if there are places where you can camp in that too because that way you can get up you know at five in the morning not you mark the rest (laughs) of us can camp get up at five in the morning and you're you know there's no one around which i can imagine is even more kind of surreal experience you bring up an interesting point and an important point about the bay area which is one of the best things about living in that part of the country is that you can get out and get away you got you got this great urban environment that's what everybody talks about these days but you can get out of that really quickly and easily in New York, and we'll talk about that in a second because you guys have been some places in around here. You can talk to that. But it's just much easier to get away from the city and get out to that stuff. It's closer, and it's just it, it takes two or three hours to get out of New York City. But San Even Francisco. within the city, though, like within, within San Francisco, like Golden Gate Park or right on the beach, like all of a sudden you're in yeah. nature and you're still technically within city limits, yeah. and you're like on a beach or in this like beautiful rocky outcrop of trees like yeah. that i think is the most special thing yeah totally it's not even just the golden gate itself but like up toward the golden gate mm-hmm. when you're going in the presidio. the presidio and you're going there's all those beaches that are yeah. empty yeah fort funston on the other side mm-hmm. or you, and whatever what baker beach is the beach that's right there right yes i think speaking oh, of naked people I used to have to do guidebooks to San Francisco, and um, I would live there for sort of three or four months at a time. And I did sort of dread my when I had to go out and scope those kind of beaches because I was a bit like, did I pick the wrong day or the right day? <laughs> it's always the right day. I pick <laughs> well, so let's keep it domestic for a minute since that's kind of where we started. You guys, Andrea and Mark, you guys both spent some time in New York's version of getting out of the city. <laughs> We did. Were you also in the Hamptons? Well, I was in the North Fork. Oh. And actually, I, if we can give a little plug, Andrea and I did do a Facebook Live all about New York. We so did. if you want more of her native New Yorker <laughs> download, please look that up. But Guys, sell it to me. I'm going to the Hamptons for the first time in my life oh, next really? weekend. Okay, yeah. where are you going? I don't know. You don't were you, you know you're what about you're about to saying? tell him. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're to she means which Hampton <laughs> are you going to? I, I don't know. <laughs> well, so the Hamptons is actually, especially during the summer, People think of the Hamptons and they think it's like one town, but really it's a series of towns that spans about a two-hour drive. I just figured the vibe's kind of the same different, across Different vibe oh, in different yeah. Hamptons. It changes. The vibe is very different in Montauk to Southampton. Do you consider Montauk one of the Hamptons? It's part of the town of East Hampton. Is it really? Yeah. Yes, it is. I didn't know that. It's in the municipality of East Hampton, yeah. but it has. it's always felt a little different set apart because it's just a huge drive there's a there's that sort of highway drive yeah. for a while that makes it feel amputated from the rest of and it and it sort of culturally is but yes. technically the town of southampton encompasses 
uh, Bridgehampton, Southampton, and uh, Wayne Scott, mm. and then there is East okay. Hampton Life Town. You've been going all your life, though. This <laughs> is amazing. I've been going my whole life. But let's explain, for people <laughs> oh. who aren't in this area, let's explain what Long Island kind of feels like from mm-hmm. inside New York. Hmm. I mean, I think it's one of, well, it's a huge suburb to start out with, so there's tons of towns that are on Long Island that are close to the city where people live and work and commute. Um, but I feel like the farther out that you get, there's all of these second home hamlets where people own houses and you're right on the beach and it's similar to what Cape Cod is to Boston. Right. Or what Malibu is to LA. Right, right, right. What I think gets lost often, and you're the Hamptons expert, Andrew, so I defer <laughs> to you on this, but I used to work for a TV station out in the Hamptons and I would sort of spend the summer out there and what gets overlooked is the farmland out there because of the glacial movement tens of thousands of years ago is among the most fertile Whoa. in the country. You went, you went deep on that. You went very deep. So it's when also you hear, in danger of being overdeveloped every like day. Two Hamptons professors. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, when you hear, but when you hear about the flora left. and fauna, I'm also excited to see like which way this now goes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's got, he's you got know, David Attenborough. It's the peanut gallery. <laughs> Please, someone save me from these people. The soil out there is super fertile. So the farms are incredible and the produce is incredible. It isn't twee produce on a roadside stand made for rich people. It is really great tomatoes, really incredible vegetables. And what I love about Out East is that when you stop at those farm stands, they are all local Mm -hmm. and they are all amazing. And they're old school families who've been farming. So yes, there's that veneer of sort of the Real Housewives summer party that they film but there's also this lovely countryfied unchanged part of new york that it's incredible it's so close to manhattan do you think that's fair? i think that's absolutely true i think it's part of the reason that people still go that and people have been going for years and years and years i mean it used to be a place where artists would go and have little colonies it's the glitzy thing i feel like is sort of the least appealing part about it and it's more about being in these beautiful clean beaches and having that those farms and being able to be outside and run around and there's national parks, there's incredible trails in Montauk that you can go hike around. It's, it's, that's the appeal. I that's that's kind of what I, for, to me, it feels like it is an analog to what you get in San Francisco. It's just that between the city and that kind of space, there's this glut. That, there's that, three hours of traffic. Yeah, there's three hours of <laughs> On the of Long Island Expressway. <laughs> and you have to go through that to get there. But once yeah. you get out there, and the other thing that I think that this is my East Coast, you know, sort of bias talking, but the beaches are fantastic. They're beautiful. Yeah, and I think this is the thing people always forget about the Hamptons when they think about the Real Housewives stuff is that the Hamptons, Fire Island, you know, uh, Montauk, all of the beaches that are out there are big, they're beautiful. Mm -hmm. They're great places to get beach time. The most interesting observation I ever heard about Long Island as a destination was that it is a place that no one passes through. It is a place that dead ends. Therefore, anyone who's in Long Island intends to be there. Mm-hmm. And it's, it, it's interesting. I like the comparison you were making earlier. I'm just like thinking. I lived in Boston for a few years, and I'm just thinking this is like Martha's Vineyard in Nantucket in the same way. Yeah, it's same more thing. like Martha's. Yeah. I think it's yeah. like I think more than Cape Cod. I think it's like Martha's Vineyard in that destinationy way that when you're there, and like you're like there. Martha's Vineyard, it sounds like there's many many sites. Which Hampton are you going to? Oh, bless I've, with I've you? been uh, informed. I'm going to Southampton. Oh, are you staying with a friend? Yes. Okay. It's we're going to talk about this. It's someone's birthday, so it's going to be gonna work. We're going to work on some ideas. Okay, great. I'm going to give you some restaurant recs. Please, I'm going to give you give my farm itinerary. stand recs. Well, now, now. Okay, best farm stand in Southampton and in all of the Hamptons, I think, is the Green Thumb, which is right off this Route 27. This podcast is brought to you by the Green <laughs> Thumb. <laughs> the other weekend, I spent $84 on pies there, so it's not cheap. <laughs> How many pies did you get? Three pies. Oh, my God. Wow. Three pies. New York price pies. Three pies for $84, but... It was worth it. That's high-class farming. Do they um, still exist? Have they been consumed? The pies, pies? the pies have been consumed, but they're... That's a good sign. If you just walk into the farm stand and you make a left and you go out to the little front terrace, there's a whole table of very expensive pies. Gotcha. Um, <laughs> you can you could just is, go is to Is that their main qualification? <laughs> yes. Very expensive. Good, ha- good hangover material. <laughs> very go. good pies. Um, there's also a peacock in a little enclosure out back. So mm. keep an eye out Why for him. Keeping it in an enclosure. I don't, I don't know. know. It'll eat the pie. And it's then right next to the highway. Come on. So are the Hamptons. <laughs> They're vicious. Come on. Where else would you send? Him? In Southampton. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's great shopping in town. You can okay. walk around. 
Um, coffee in the morning, golden pear. Gotcha. That's good. Uh, Noted. If you want a fancy cup of gelato, I would go to San Ambrose, which has a couple Is of outposts in New York. The, yeah. yeah. The pie place? But it's oh like, my God. I'm seeing a motif. It's not, You're it's sending not him to really. San Ambrose. Like. I mean, this <laughs> is Southampton, Brad. But <laughs> Southampton <laughs> is the most, you see, I would, to rescue Andrea here, so people <laughs> make fun of her, Southampton is one of the most convenient Hamptons. It has an enormous number you got of... got your Santa Ambrose right there. <laughs> okay. But the re- I was not finished with my Santa Ambrose <laughs> anecdote, an which is it's the best people watching. You sit there, you get a coffee, and you just like watch the entire society Wait, I thought you were supposed Southampton to get gelato unfurl. There. You do both. Okay. You can do either or. Afogato. Yes. Just well, put them together. Out of interest, what will Southampton be like in mid-late September? Because I will say... I have only ever been to Montauk, and every time I've been there, it's been in September, and mm-hmm. it's been, I think, an amazing time to go. It's the best time to go, and I think. Yeah. And why is that? Because it's still beautiful. The ocean is warm enough to swim, and most of the people that are renting houses for the summer are gone. So Labor it's Day like, has told them to, yeah, to go back It's home. like diehard yeah. people that either live there or have had houses there forever, so it's a little bit more of a relaxed scene, and it's much emptier. And like it's still beautiful. Well, I just, I'll, I'll report back. I, I just think it's really. I think it's easy to assume the Hamptons are an elite place that you can't visit unless you have a five million dollar home, or that you wouldn't want to visit because it's full of kind of real housewivesy people. And I always feel very defensive about the Hamptons because I think that is one side to it. And I think, like Lala said, you know, Montauk out of season is magic, yeah. magical. Right. You feel like you're at the tip of the like the edge of the world yeah. they call it the end yeah. oh wait there is one great place there's a place called Stephen talk house in amagansett and they have live music uh, not maybe not every night but every saturday night so if you want to go see some live music you can, can join in so i'll be there on a saturday it's like night, really so. debaucherous but there is That's live music and it's fun <laughs> it's my hang <laughs> it's fun. It's like a total dive. It's not fancy at all. But now, Mark North Fork. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to a wedding. I went to a wedding in the North Fork. Thank you, Jenna David, at a winery. And Long Island splits. At the end, it is it forks. There's the North and the South Fork. Two pronged. It is two pronged. The South Fork is the Hamptons and is the more trafficked or more well-known area. The North Fork is a lot of vineyards. And the South Fork is on the ocean. Yes, the South Fork is on... They're all on the water, but the South Fork is on the ocean. And the North Fork is on the 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 bay. But on the sound. But what I loved about the North Fork, and I hadn't spent as much time as I did there driving around looking at the vineyards, you can do a lovely vineyard trail. And it is a little bit... It isn't as popular. It isn't as easy to get to. So it's almost like the Hamptons 20 years ago. It reminded me of Montauk when I first went, you know, 15 years ago. There's like a funky little motel and there's a few things, but it isn't the city exported out east. Mm-hmm. And I think if you're, you know, the the we, the wedding that I went to was at Bedell Cellars, uh, the vineyard, and it was just a beautiful, beautiful, and again, wine, amazing wine is mm-hmm. produced within three hours drive of New York City. And you can try it all out. I think that was, it was wonderful. It was a magical, magical experience. And I uh, think that farm stand culture is very active in the North Fork Absolutely, well. same thing. So, you know, we came back in our rental car with just, you know, bags and bags and bags of groceries from the farm stands. Yeah. No did you pies. go to Bri- Did you go to Okay, there is a great pie place on the North Fork. <laughs> <laughs> it's called It's called Briarmere Farms. No, I didn't go there. <laughs> I'm not a pie person. I don't have a sweet tooth. What's, what's the price point for the pie? I think they're slightly less than the green thumb. <laughs> But they are excellent. No matter where you are in the world, tweet at uh, <laughs> Andrea's Andrea Andrea pies needs to know where to find some pies all around. The I would love to where to I would actually love to know. Does anyone have? Is, does anyone live near an amazing pie store? Because I feel like we should send Andrea on kind of a road trip yeah. around America. I'm going to pitch it to the magazine. Road trip, <laughs> where, pie road trip, pie road trip. Best so please, pie in America. listeners, if you have any amazing pie shops, please tweet at Andrea and tell her what her itinerary should consist of. I can't wait. I'm going to be the best. On the subject of the North Fork, I do feel like that's a place where you really can feel like you are in a rural environment. Like there are farms, there are sort of... It feels more like New England than the tri-state yeah, area. Yeah. It's clapboard houses. Yeah. I and mean, you've been, you've, you've, you've been. I've, I've spent some time out there because, again, I, I've, I've gone out there and done wine tastings and I've gone and, and sort of... You can't do... The thing that you can't do there, and you just have to sort of deal with this, is 
the beaches are not the same. So you don't get those amazing ocean beaches with like white sand and, and you know, big stretches of, of kind of places to hang out and play and whatever. But you do get a different sort of thing. And, you know, it reminds, I, I completely agree, it reminds me of New England. It reminds me of kind of like stretches in New Hampshire, stretches in Maine, where you just have fields and houses and and you're surprised that this could be so close to Manhattan. And I hate to plug Andrea on my Facebook live again, but I will <laughs> say it is one of my one of my missions to remind people, you know, we all love New York. We live in New York City. But there are some amazing things in New York state that if they were in any other state that wasn't domineered by New York City, they would be way better known. Places like the North Fork are gorgeous. And if they were in a different state, they would sort of not be eclipsed in the same way. And same, I think it's, the same could be said for like the Hudson Valley and absolutely. Other There's other so yeah. much in New York State that is world class for what America offers. But because obviously Manhattan is this giant 800 pound gorilla, and I think reminding people that actually you could come to New York and go to the like Long Island, you could go to Hudson Valley, you yeah. could go. And that would be an incredible experience. And a New Englandy that it, it reminds you of the cultural connection. Totally. And I, so I feel very much, I want to remind people about the Finger Lakes and, you know, that kind of thing. Move up the coast, Nantucket. You spend some time there. I was in Nantucket because a friend of mine has a party there every summer. And a bunch of my college friends go and hang out at their house. And it's really fun. I think we all want to be in Andrea's yeah. life. Yeah, yeah, I think now. a little, yeah. So, <laughs> anyway. She's like, yeah. I'm like, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, you do. It's pretty, it's pretty sweet. <laughs> it's great to be me. <laughs> or to know me, even, really. Um, <laughs> so what do you love about Nantucket? It feels very frozen in time. So the Hamptons has this very glitzy, huge mega mansion thing going on. You know, I, we just, like, extolled its virtues, but there are some things about it that are a bit fancy-schmancy, whereas the, I think Nantucket is... You walk off the ferry, you take the ferry from Hyannis Point, or you fly in, but the flights are few and far between and very expensive, so the ferry is the way to go. And it's just like all these beautiful old shingle-style fishermen's cottages, and it feels a little bit slower and a little bit more quaint, for lack of a better word. But um, we stayed in Sconset, which is this little village at the sort of opposite end of the island from the main town, and there's all these little salt box cottages that are tiny, teeny tiny. Like they don't look like anything from the outside. And a lot of them are available to rent. So like there's multiple rental agencies that you can find them through. And it's like a five minute walk to the beach and a five minute walk to this like amazing sandwich shop in town whose name I am forgetting. And you can bike, like it's super easy to bike all over the island. But so you know where to get pie. I, mm. Good question. Do I know where to Okay, but tweet it, Andrea, and let me know. <laughs> but Andrea, what I would say, I think what Nantucket and the Hamptons have in common is they are destinations that have been more unlocked by the sharing economy. Totally. Because Nantucket does have hotels, but in season they can be very expensive. Out of season they might be shut down. Mm -hmm. What I found about Nantucket is suddenly the sharing economy services mean that you can find a way to get there without knowing someone or being really rich. There's a slight more accessibility, which I think is magical. Mm -hmm. Totally. Our features editor, Alex Postman, actually wrote a really great piece last week about going to Nantucket and looking at it through a sort of like feminist historical lens. It's on our website, and she has a lot of really great picks, so you should check that article out. Okay. So speaking of fairies... Lale, you and I spent some time in a part of the world where fairies are kind of a must. Not yes. together, though. Just we well, did not spend time to together. To your spouses. Just to, yes, just to reassure the, your my wife who never wife. listens to the podcast. But, but yes. What a very different trip. Beautiful transition, guys. Um, so where did you go? So I started in Istanbul, and I was there for five days. And then I went on to Athens, which is only an hour's flight away. And it's quite incredible how you can just be in these two equally historic, yet totally different cities in an hour. Like the, the plane takes off and then you're, you're landing already. Um, where, in, where in Turkey is your family history? Where, where is it? Uh, so my dad was born in Adana, but then he moved to Ankara. And then a lot of our family are in Istanbul. Um, but it, not just Istanbul. I mean, your family has sort of 
gone along because Turkey is such a huge country yeah. we always forget that so Ankara and Ankara know. and Adana and then quite a few people are still my dad's cousins are still half in Adana and then spend the summers in Istanbul so speaking of going on holiday with your parents mm. um, the Istanbul part of my trip was with my parents you sure they weren't my parents? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty sure. <laughs> all staffers just go on all vacations together. We all, we all together. just travel together close. all the time. We're very we close. just love hanging out. Inseparable. In, in very close. We have to make time for Seb's debauchery. <laughs> <laughs> we have to get pie with Andrea. And I actually think we have Honestly, a topic. This sounds like a great trip. <laughs> no, but I think, I think, and I'd be curious, would, would listeners be interested in this? I think traveling with your, your parents as an adult is a very interesting topic because I the one of my most precious trips I've ever taken was just my father and me for his 80 something birthday. It resonates with all of us and it's a complicated thing but it has amazing moments. Yeah, and I think I'm lucky enough that I'm you know, I get on very well with my parents and I'm very close to them and they like when they're traveling they like doing a lot of the same things that I like doing, which is mostly walking around and eating and drinking. Um, <laughs> they sound like awesome parents. Yeah. <laughs> we would get along just fine. <laughs> they're great. Um, so now they're included in the group. Yeah, yeah. Would travel with Lala's parents. <laughs> my my <laughs> mum booked a very hip Airbnb for us in Nishantisha in Istanbul, which is sort of I'd say like the West Village of the city. And yeah, we just walked around and you know, just like explored all the different neighborhoods. It was very useful having my dad there because he could obviously can speak Turkish and we can't. To my shame, I can't. So Did you feel safe though? I think it's it's one of those interesting questions because at the moment, for many reasons, Turkey's in the crosshairs of geopolitics. There have been attacks in Istanbul, this political unrest, domestic political unrest. Did it feel uncomfortable to be there? Um I would say in terms of my own safety as a visitor, I would say absolutely not. It felt the same as if I would have been in Paris or Barcelona. Or, or New in, York, where or, we all live. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or in London, just to cite a few places that have had right. recent mm -hmm. attacks. Yeah. And, you know, at sort of big tourist sites like the Iosphere, you could, you know, you could notice there was heightened security, but that's the same if you go to the Eiffel Tower these sure. days. Yeah. So I would say I felt as safe as I would in those other cities. I didn't feel that there was a sense of unrest. I think there is definitely a atmosphere of political instability that it's at your own discretion as a traveler whether you want to go there at this time. But in terms of walking around the city, I felt the same as I did six years ago. How, do you, and, how and does again, that manifest itself? Like when you say there's an atmosphere of political unrest, like what do you mean people want to talk politics and people have lots of opinions yeah. and feelings? Yeah. And yeah. I actually, I would say it, in that way, it feels very much the same as America. Yeah, I was about to say. I mean, you're it talking was, about heavy security at major tourist attractions, such as this very tall building that we work in, yes. where every morning, We're sitting in right now. every morning we walk by, you know, cops with automatic weapons outside the front doors. Yeah. You talk about a kind of strange political tension or dynamic in the air. Sounds a lot like this country, too. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting to put that into perspective. Though. Yeah, I think so. And especially as it was, I thought, quite saddening to not see really any American tourists or very few British tourists, you know, and tourists from other parts of Western Europe. And, and that was very different from the last time I was there. Mm. It seemed like the pendulum had really swung from west to east in terms of visitors. So you would send, my point is, because I, I think it's very important to remember, you would send people there and say, sure, you're going to, you know, maybe you shouldn't take a big backpack around when you're sightseeing, but they need us to visit in that same way that there's been a drop off. Yeah, the country's tourism is definitely plummeting. And I think Istanbul is desperate for visitors. And it goes back, I think, to kind of what we've said again and again about things like terrorism. Thing. We were talking about it last week about when we on our podcast on North Korea. For the record, I'm totally with you and Laura. I think Brad's I, I came. I, well, well, but that being said, you know, people could take that whole argument, you know, farther by saying that you shouldn't even go to Japan or you shouldn't even go to South Korea or these places that are in the, like you put it, in the crosshairs of these geopolitical changes. But like, there's literally nothing you can do if one of these things happens. So why are you going to 
stop your life because of it. To- I think, totally I think, agree. Totally agree. Like, Lale, tell us what was awesome about Istanbul. The food, obviously. Okay, yeah. tell me about that. I had this amazing meal in um, a neighborhood called Karakoy, which is sort of hipster, artsy neighborhood on the European side near the Bosphorus, not too far from Galata Tower if you need like a sort of landmark. And it was called, and I'm going to butcher the name and not say it right, but it was along the lines of Karakoy Lonkatsi. Um, and it was all meze, very affordable, kind of inspired by like old Ottoman recipes. And it's a real like power lunch, see and be seen spot. And it was some of the best food I had my entire trip. It was so good. We totally overordered. Um, what are the basics of the food that you're going to eat there? Um, like what are the go-tos? You're going to have a lot of lamb, a mm. lot of meat, roasted, pureed eggplant, um, lots of yogurt. They put yogurt on everything. The um, bread is, I just remember that. The I was, bread is, in, so the bread is insane. Mm. Yeah. And they give you so much of it. Like it's every, always warm. and fr- oh, so Every good. restaurant you go to, they just give you piles of warm <laughs> bread to just like dip in hummus and all these amazing I think Turkish food, I think Turkish food is one of the unfairly overlooked cuisines. I think it's sort of the perfect combination of sort of Greek and Middle Eastern and like delicious morsels of something spiced with a spice. I don't know what it is, yeah. but it's so amazing. And it's never an overwhelming spice either. So I actually think it's quite like an accessible food for people of lots of different palates. I mean, yes, I just said you eat a lot of meat, but it's it feels healthy. It's a it's a lot of the food very healthy. And then we actually drank. I tried a bunch of Turkish wines. They were delicious. Yeah. Where yeah. from? Where yeah. are they? Where? where where are they grown? I can't even tell you. They were just they just said Turkey on the thing, and it was great. people. <laughs> listeners, <laughs> tweet us. My intel ends here. Tell what us because I'd love to know if there's. I didn't great, know yeah. Turkey made. I mean, I assume that I didn't either, and I don't think there's a lot of it. But um, on every menu, there was always a little section. Of Turkish wine, so I would always choose. But see, that. here's another good this is the difference between vacation and work trips for us. Like, if you're on a work trip and you're like Turkish wine, you would have done like all this background. You would oh, have yeah. been like, oh yeah, where's this wine from? Well, How long has it been actually, there? Actually, my dad had a little post-it note with a list of wines <laughs> that we had to try that his cousin had sent. Well, there you I am go. picturing so my big fat Greek wedding here. Note. I'm picturing like. A <laughs> but it was <laughs> the same way where I was like in Japan, and, like we're staying at a hotel, and I asked. I find myself like asking the person, like, oh, how many rooms are in this? And I was like, wait, why don't I don't fucking care? <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. But I, and I have to say, it's funny because I, those of you who are listening, who are listening, I think you are truly getting a little glimpse behind the scenes of when we take our our vacation trips. We are a little bit lazy in that wonderful way where we get to not double check everything, and it clicks in the way Seb said. So you're like, um, when was the hotel open? Uh, how many rooms? Uh, what uh, specific? When does breakfast start? Like, actually, is, this is information I don't care about. Right it is at all. What did the owner do before we open the hotel? <laughs> It is wonderful to travel a little bit, a little bit in some ways more relaxedly and in some ways more normally, if there is such a thing. And to sort of have the Turkish wine and not click into work mode yeah. is very liberating. But we, I mean, we're very lucky to even have that distinction. So food, excellent. Mm-hmm. What else should we be thinking about going to Istanbul? I mean, it's the pie it, situation. Yeah. <laughs> Can't confirm. We're going to talk about pies when we get to Greece. We're headed there. Um, I'll say it's an incredibly walkable city. Um, very, very steep hills. So be prepared to actually like exercise your calf muscles. Yeah, I didn't realize that. Um, but yeah, you can just sort of wander from one neighborhood to the next. Um, cabs are super cheap. Um, so you can, but the traffic's terrible. So sometimes it's actually a lot faster to walk. There's also, you know, very efficient subway system you can take. And also take the ferry. The ferry is wonderful. Um, and, you know, the thing that always blows my mind about Istanbul is you're in Europe and then you're in Asia. And you can take a ferry just like a, I mean, there are tourist ones, but you can also just take like a commuter ferry from the European side over to the Asian side. Um, and, you know, it's it's such an amazing experience. It's like Sydney along. or Venice. I think this is one of the magical yet very ordinary things about Istanbul is that like Venice or Sydney, people get around on, on the water. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. 
In even that, in I, New York. Well, and, and you know, and that's a great point. A I native New East, Yorker. I took the East River Ferry for the first time last night, and it was magical. magical. And it was two dollars and seventy five. And it's a commuter. It's a bus on the it's water. A bus. And as a as a tourist, there's something amazing about just hopping on what should be a bus and a kind of trafficy, janky bus. But it's actually a boat that you are. People are going home yeah. from their commute. And it's like, and you're sort of dazzled by everything around you and think it's the most incredible thing you've ever experienced and everyone else is just like on their phones or like reading a newspaper and don't care (laughs) so yes I would say that's a definite must and shopping's great obviously you can buy amazing textiles Um, I found this shop at the back of the blue mosque where I just hoarded like blankets and towels and all this great stuff that I've seen sold at Brooklyn Flea for like Right. Way too much money. <laughs> so I was going to say, can I? Uh, I have a great friend who works for Marvi in um, in Istanbul, who's the head of design for Marvi, and he said to me, "What is often overlooked is that other than outerwear, which for lots of complicated garmento reasons is not made in Turkey, Turkey is the second biggest factory hub after South Asia, after China and sort of Bangladesh. So if you go to the regional markets in Istanbul." All the factories that have been producing for an enormous number of household names offload their spare stuff, sometimes with the labels in them, sometimes without, for a couple of bucks. And it's one of the loveliest bonuses of being in Istanbul when you go shopping. Over and above the the carpets, you can actually get kind of crazy. It's basically like a giant outlet mall, but way, way cooler. So let's stay in this region and let's follow Mm -hmm. Lale for a minute. Okay. Where did you go next? So then flew to Athens. I had a friend who lives there. So I feel like I got a really kind of unique view of Athens that I wouldn't have got if I'd gone there and didn't know anyone. Again, just like I had my dad speaking Turkish in Istanbul, I had my friend Andrew speaking Greek in Athens. So and I, that, that I just want to say, because I was in Athens like a week before you yeah. were, that's a big difference. Oh, God, it was it was huge. <laughs> yeah. Because um, Greek, one of the things about Greece that I would say was that it didn't surprise me or anything, but, you know, I've traveled a lot in, in Europe and I've traveled a lot in that region and I, it, it's very, very different because the alphabet is radically different. You cannot, if you travel to Spain, if you travel to France, Italy, there are Romance languages, Roman alphabet, you can kind of decipher things. And I travel with my wife, who's an Italian, who speaks French and Spanish and so on and so forth we couldn't speak a word of Greek. And most people, a lot of the Europeans who travel there can't either because they don't study Greek. Was it empowering or frustrating or a little bit of both? It was, to- I, I mean, no, but I'm curious about hearing what Lale has to say because for me, it was totally fine. And I think uh, in the sense that because the Greeks speak English, which is different, we'll talk about Japan. Well, I was which I think, say, yeah. Like, I mean, I think it was different for me. And, I, you know, I don't, I'm curious to hear about your experience of Japan. But in Japan, you cannot count on the fact that people speak English. No. Whereas in Greece, everywhere we went, even small places, there were very few occasions where we didn't have somebody who could speak at least rudimentary English. And so it was okay. Yeah. But, but then, but language opens up doors, I feel like, beyond just it comprehension. It does, it does. That's you know? why I'm curious. Like like, the, yeah. And when it came to yeah. things like getting a table in a restaurant, yeah. Right. Yeah. it was, you know, my friend would just go straight barge through and yeah. figure it out. So it's also like cultural fluency as well yeah. as yeah. linguistic. Um, right? And he yeah. also, I mean, he's been living there for almost a year. Um, he's from London, but already he kind of... Is he Greek? Yeah. Um, okay, so he speaks. And uh, totally fluent. And I feel like, because it... it in that time, he kind of got to know at least the center of Athens, like the back of his hand. So we were just hopping between all these different neighborhoods. That What like, is the center of Athens? I mean, when I was there, I felt like what I saw as the center was the area around the Acropolis. So like Manastiraki, yeah. Plaka. I mean, it's a little Kulkaki. hard. Yeah, Kolkaki. Like, it's a little hard to know the ba- the boundaries when you're kind of like walking around that stuff. Yeah, and it just sort of I feel like it goes out in sort of concentric circles around yeah. around yeah. that. To me, it was, the Acropolis was that focal point. But maybe it was just because I didn't know anything else in the city, so 
it was my marker and you can kind of no, see it from that, anywhere. Well, no, but that's an interesting thing that I didn't think about until I was there and kind of like walking around and going from neighborhood to neighborhood. And every, there was one point in which I looked up and there was the Acropolis again. Yeah. And I was like, <laughs> I said to my wife, it's there again. We can't escape <laughs> this thing. And then you realize, like, that's the point. Yeah. They built it that way to be at the center of the city, and it's up on the mountaintop and, like, whatever. Yeah. And it's lit. Of course, it's lit up like any monument. But it's designed to be at the center yeah. of everything. And it's – I don't know. When you think of something that's so ancient and famous – for some reason in my head, I always assume it's going to be like out of the city. Like it's going to be like Stonehenge. Like, <laughs> <laughs> But it's not. It's right in the middle of it. And everything like just, just goes on mm-hmm. around it. Did it, you visit the Acropolis? I did. And so what, tell me what you thought about that. Um, so we had grand plans to get there at 8 a.m. And we got there at 10.30 when everyone got off their tour buses. Um, but it was it was great. I mean, it was. It's like an attic up there. Yeah. It's like the it's, Greek's attic. Like, but it's the, no, just but, bizarre. And also so much stuff is missing. Yeah. Because it's in... Because the Brits took the it. The British Museum. Yeah. <laughs> I've we seen have that as, numbers. I've seen a trend numbers. around the world where that's the case. No, I... I but this is, this is really funny because you go up there and, you know, you think of these things, they sort of hold this place in your imagination. You know, the Parthenon, um, the, these various temples that are there. And then you get up there and it's like a construction zone. It's a literal construction zone because they're doing restoration and that's kind of normal. But you go, you know, past the sort of Temple of Nike or whatever it is and you go through the, 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 the other sort of structure that's there. And then you're in this giant space that is bigger than a football field. It's enormous. And it's strewn with all kinds of marble rocks and then you walk around and you and, and you it sort of feels cluttered and you look at some of these rocks and they're actually carved and they were actually carved you know in the height of you know Greek civilization but I would always encourage it's I was a tour guide in, in Italy and I took a lot of people around ancient Roman sites and one of the best things a local guide once said to me whenever you're somewhere like the Acropolis and you are surrounded by throngs of people and it feels somehow not your private moment that you dreamed of whether it's your Instagram or your emotional moment that those areas were centerpieces of the ancient city. And actually, when you are in the Forum in Rome or at the Acropolis and it is thronged with people, that is more an evocation of how it was in its heyday but than that if you were there. I mean, I, I, I think that's a good point, but it actually wasn't that thronged. Really? It was yeah, more... Oh, I've never, I've never seen it empty. Oh. I mean, it, 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 was, really? it was totally yeah. manageable, and I've seen worse days right here at the tower. Oh, yeah. I actually like, would say it was busier at the Hagia Sophia in Istanbul than it was at the Acropolis. I mean, yeah, it, I, and I don't know why that would be, but, like, I don't have an explanation for it, But but what was more kind of interesting and instructive to me, I guess, was just the way it was like, look, there's just a lot of ruins up there. And it's been through like millennia and, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years of different artifacts that are there. And they're cleaning it up and they're doing restorations all the time. And so like, where are they going to put it? You know, you sort of think like, so they've got, they're basically storing all kinds of things that are relics, like on the ground, like, right. It's not like it's disorganized or anything, but it does feel like an attic. It feels yeah. like, yeah, we got a little freeze right here. Yeah, we got a little, you know, top of a, of a, of a column right here. And we got this other piece over here. And you can sort of see these fragments that have all been carved. But they're, they're just kind of lying around because they're going to get to them. They're going to fix them up. I find that sort of fascinating, though. Like, I find it sort of when you're in Greece or when you're in Italy, like, daily life takes place around all of this stuff. Totally. Like, it's yeah. just part of the city. Totally. Like, the, Ram- the Roman Forum is just, like, in the city. Yeah. And even... At my uncle's house, they live right next to this old Roman fort, and they're right on the water, and they find, like, statue fragments in the water. Yeah. And, like, tiles and these weird little pots and glass and, like, old amphora, these pots, and they're just, like, in the ground around. And I kind of think that that's one of the most fascinating parts is that it's not necessarily this very formalized experience where you're in a museum. Like, it's just there next to you in a pile of dirt. I, I felt that way and because I'm just going to start bringing in Japan references because I don't <laughs> think I have time to like give you my itinerary. But I felt that way in Kyoto um, as well where, you know, they call it the city of 10,000 shrines because it's literally like a jaw-droppingly beautiful temple or shrine like almost on every corner. 
and I'll be like sitting there like marveling at this shrine, looking at the intricacies, and someone will just like ride by on their bike, a you know, a person from Kyoto, like smoking a cigarette on his bike, gets off his bike, throws a hundred yen into the shrine, bows real quick, says a quick prayer, gets back on his bike and goes heads on his way to work. <laughs> Seems like a, some priceless treasure and then it's just a part of daily life there. But that's know? also part of the joy, isn't it? I mean, to, yeah. to be reminded that while we're wowed by it, quite rightly so, that lovely ordinariness is yeah. is super engaging because it reminds you that actually to, to people who live there, it's just part of life. It's not something to stop and gawp at. It just integrates. Yeah. I mean, so, Lolly, st- just sticking with Athens for a minute, I've, I've gotten lots of questions since I got mm-hmm. back from Athens and it sort of ties into what Andrea was saying a little bit but um, but people will sort of say to me like did you see a lot of graffiti <laughs> and I and I am curious what you what your sort of take on Athens was oh you should tell them about the anarchist neighborhood oh yeah <laughs> um, so to me I feel like Athens was really feels like a city with a with an edge there's a slight atmosphere every now and then where it's like anything could happen and not in like a dangerous way, just in a, there's an un- unpredictability to it, um, which I really enjoyed. And, you know, there was there was one evening where we were walking through this very wealthy kind of ritzy neighborhood. And uh, my friend was taking us to a restaurant he knew in the neighborhood next to it. And the neighborhood next to it was, he kept referring to as like the anarchist neighborhood. Um, and it's where the a lot of the anti-fascist movement is based but that also kind of can be translated into young student neighborhood yeah um which also was filled with great bars great restaurants a lot of graffiti and street art like you see throughout most of the city and i think the city's divided into two camps of young people who are super into it and then the cab driver I had from the airport who didn't stop complaining about it. <laughs> and also for good reason, because he was like, it's ruining all our buildings and is expensive to clean up. So yeah, neither party is right or wrong, I don't think. But this neighborhood was fascinating and had just like this real energy to it. And there was this square that was uh, filled with protest banners about everything from refugees to women's rights, to socialism. And it was this sort of crazy gathering spot that was almost like a speak how you imagine speaker's corner of london used to be Mm. and you also had you know these guys with grills that they'd just bought out and were like cooking up middle eastern food and blasting music of speakers with lasers i mean it was just (laughs) it was just like balmy and the really interesting thing about this neighborhood that my friend was telling me was that it was a police no-go zone and so what does that mean like, the police just didn't come into that neighborhood. It's a European capital city. But there's some. There's but, another one somewhere in the world that I've but heard it's, of. Like, but it's basically like when there was all the, the protests and riots in the city, I guess this one neighborhood has kind of just driven the police out. And so when you get to the end of a certain block, there's a bunch of police that are just hanging on the end of that block the whole time, but they just don't And you didn't feel unnerved being in this police-free zone? You didn't feel vulnerable? No. I mean, a lot of the time it kind of felt like I was in Bushwick in Brooklyn. (laughs) Um, Oh, there's another... It's called Christiana in Copenhagen, which is like the free city of Christiana, which is like another similar kind of anti-establishment neighborhood that the... It's kind of just an unspoken agreement that we're going to do our thing and the police are going to stay out of it. Yeah, and it was exactly the same. So, yeah, I just feel like Athens just had this real kind of crazy energy to it. And it, I don't know what I don't know. Did what you, you agree? Found. I've been puzzled by these questions because I found I found Athens reminded me of a very small, much poorer version of Rome. Because you do see, like, you kind of stumble upon ruins everywhere and they're like, oh, we had to dig up the street because we found a thing and, like, now we have to figure out what it is. And then also it reminded me of Bologna, which is a city that is, like, riddled with, at least when I was there, tons and tons of graffiti, a lot of it very political, a lot of it very kind of, like, intellectual because it's a student city. And so Athens kind of felt like that to me as well. Definitely. Um, it felt very international in the sense that there was clearly strong immigrant communities that were there, which have influenced, you know, the food and, and the, the, the shops like the Monastiraki flea market felt like just this very, very bustling 
you know, attic of the world kind of with all sorts of um, really interesting things kind of thrown around. And the Greeks themselves, in my experience, which is extremely limited, but they were just very laid back, right? Like I've been in much more intense sort of city environments and people were super friendly. Oh, yeah, like totally. Super um, helpful and like, you know, wanted to talk, wanted to kind of um, talk about food, talk about wine. Everybody loves to talk about the wine. So I don't know. I, I, I didn't feel any of like, yeah, it felt like a city. It felt like a and not a city that's particularly, you know, wealthy, but it felt like a, um, but it felt like a very diverse kind of, you know, active place. But it had a vibe to me that was um, we're just kind of doing our thing. Like we're going about our business. Like we're not, you know, that the concerns that uh, people have had this weird sort of concern when they ask me really? about this. Yeah. Like. I don't know that I would go to Athens. Oh, I was like, what are you talking about? It was, it was amazing. Everyone's missing out if they're yeah, thinking that way. It was, it was beautiful and it was, uh, yeah, sure. Like you go downtown and it feels like a downtown, you know. Yeah. But would we send everyone, given oh, that we're talking, about, God, vac- yes. given yes. we're talking about all of our vacation spots this year, everywhere we've been, would we send our listeners there? I, I really there? would, yeah. I would, I'd 100%. send my mom there. Oh my God, like, you she'd get, have a great time. You get ancient history and ruins that you'll... You can only see there, and they're so accessible because they're everywhere. Great food. I had one of the best meals I think I've ever had in Athens. I literally had the best goat I've ever had. <laughs> no, also, I'm not kidding. Goats? Also, besides that, you get a, I feel like you probably get a city that's on the move in a lot of ways because it's recovering from a completely crippling yeah. economic disaster. And, also, and like, so you, you get that dynamism and that energy that you don't find in cities that in London or in New York and exactly and people want you there they're like they do excited to yeah. host you in their city and they want you to visit and they want you to spend money and I couldn't encourage people enough to go also if you get you know fatigued by it hop on a boat and go to an island there then, you go I went yeah. to Hydra for two days and it was 90 minutes on the hydrofoil and you're in a different idyllic world. Did you listen to anything except Leonard Cohen while of, you were there? Of course not. <laughs> <laughs> it's where everything was made. It was amazing. Yeah, That was his writing spot. Yeah, so he owned a house there that he bought in the 60s and it's where he wrote a lot of his kind of most best-known songs and he became this kind of sort of almost like biased and I'm exaggerating, but it was almost like this sort of like holy figure on the island, like... You would speak to someone and they'd be like, oh, yeah, he used to, you know, he used to come into this restaurant for dinner. Or there'd be like some guy that would claim that they would have a drink together in the evenings. And there was on one hiking trail, there was a bench that had been just put there for him like a couple of months ago. And they renamed his street Leonard Cohen. And I wonder not, if any, not a Greek name at all. No, <laughs> no but you I'm, can see it written in Greek as well. Can yeah. you really? Yeah. But I'm curious if anyone listening is a sort of Leonard Cohen aficionado because I think Hydra is, if you are a Leonard Cohen completist, it is oh. part of your. You must go to Hydra because yeah. it was. Oh, yeah. If you're on a on a pilgrimage to see things that matter to Leonard Cohen, yeah. it was fundamental to who he was. Oh God, yeah, and um, I mean, my whole family. It, He's like our family's musician. Everyone loves him. So I had to send all these pictures to my family and because I went down this long TripAdvisor hole and figured out where his house was and um, found it, which is obviously then it was easy because it said Leonard Cohen Street on it. But, um, <laughs> and there was a giant <laughs> sign outside. Like the long TripAdvisor hole. <laughs> no, but and it's then not it like said Leonard, Leonard Cohen number one. But you Leonard can't Cohen find Street. it on Google Maps or anything. And so it all it was like, it was like, go up. 200 steps up this street and you'll see the four corners supermarket and then like turn left and turn right and it was down this tiny tiny little quiet quiet street and so so beautiful and the thing that really struck me is you know Hydra has this sort of like bubbling art scene these days and um it's obviously changed a lot over the years from how I think it used to be which was very quiet and kind of hippy dippy and now you know, you've got yachts in the port and it's a little, little different crowd. But the difference between Leonard Cohen and the, I think the mark he made on that island compared to, say, this billionaire art dealer that's now trying to make a similar mark there. And his yacht was sat in the port that had been 
designed by Jeff Koons and it oh was my in God. all these garish One colors can only imagine. and it was huge and it just sat there and like they never got off the yacht and it just it was not quite the same vibe as Leonard Cohen no. smoking weed that's and how you influence the local culture is just <laughs> yeah. park your yacht <laughs> your brightly colored Jeff Koons design See, yacht I don't know if I'm alone but I just want to be on the yacht not with Leonard Cohen is that is that just I want to be with Leonard Cohen I'm with Leonard Cohen I want to be on the yacht Leonard Cohen would never get on the yacht though I just want to be on the yacht I want to be getting drunk on whatever the on the Uzo Uzo quick quick hit on Uzo I was, Uzo was not the only thing he was consuming on Hydra, so you'd no, be done for other Uzo. things. I'm asking, I'm asking. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm going to have to stay loyal to my Turkish roots and say that Raki is the preferred. But you can get Raki on, on, in Greece. Not everywhere, though. And they're basically the same thing. I, we got free Raki in like, like yeah. almost every restaurant we went to. Really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I got free Uzo in every place I went to. <laughs> I never got Uzo at a restaurant, but I got Raki at many of them. Wait, I thought you guys were traveling together. What's going on? <laughs> Only our parents. <laughs> our parents were traveling together. We never saw each other. We got to cut the Greece discussion short, but I'm going to leave to Athens since we're still in Athens. I'm going to say these completely wrong. Titikas kai mermigas off of Syntagma Square, place to get this goat that I'm talking about. It was so good that I feel like I cannot talk about Athens without saying it was literally the best goat I've ever had, and I've had really good goat. And then the other one is Meliartos on Ermu, which is kind of between Syntagma and Monastiraki. And this was a place that you can get pie, spinach Mm. pie and other types of pie, and it's great walking around food, not exactly the same kind of pie, and way, way cheaper. (laughs) Okay, it has that going for it. That's yeah, fine. Yeah, really good. So I got to leave people with those. Um, can, I, can I just say my one Athens restaurant? Absolutely, yes. Um, it was this place called Nolan. It was not too far from Placa, so, um, you know, very central. And it was, it might sound weird, but it was like Japanese-Greek fusion. But it was some of the best food I've ever eaten. And there were these tahini soba noodles which oh i can't stop mm. thinking about wow. it sounds nuts but it was sounds delicious so, it was yeah. so I'm good i'm so hungry I'm right in. now we're so recording so this at the end of the day and i'm hallucinating <laughs> my supper and i now want tahini soba noodles uh, also who, bread who like in greece i felt like i never got bad bread the no. bread was great everywhere and there was it was plentiful yeah I do feel, and I'm here, I feel like Brad and Lolly had a summer vacation together. I feel like they're comparing metaphorical vacation snaps. Well, we're only talking Athens, though, and Greece is so much more than Athens. So, But I'm going to exercise self-control. Seb, you've been waiting. All right, here's we we don't have much time. Here's my crash course if you have 10 days in... You've got to be like Redmond with uh, all of Asia. Day one. If you have 10 days... On Honshu, the main island in Japan, I think you should do exactly what I did because it was perfect and it was incredible. <laughs> so it was, first of all, you buy a Japan Rail Pass because it's like the most amazing deal I've ever seen. 200 and something dollars, seven days, unlimited Shinkansen bullet train trips for ask a week. Shinkansen. Yeah. Um, which is how we got around our entire time we were in Japan. We did Tokyo for three days. Then we went up to a place called Kanazawa just kind of like northwest of the island. Relatively, especially compared when you compare it, it's kind of like a Kyoto light and without any of the giant crowds that Kyoto gets in terms of the castles and temples and shrines on display. And it's only recently kind of getting a lot of tourists because it only just got connected to the main Shinkansen line in like 2013 or 2014. So it was really interesting to see because we got some of that same kind of, I don't know, spiritual Japan city without the tour buses of Kyoto. From there, hour and a half bus ride to this little village called Shirakawago, which is in the Japan Alps, and uh, stayed there for a night. And it's one of the most beautiful places I've ever been in my life. It was like, I could not believe it was real. I felt like I was on a magic mushroom trip the whole time I was there. (laughs) It was unreal. It It was these little kind of, they're called gasho style houses. Gasho is like the term, the Japanese word for the hand motions that you make when you pray, because it's these very steep kind of triangular roofs just sort of set in a valley. And we got there very late in the afternoon, so we thought we had the whole place to ourselves because was, there was nobody around besides the people who live there and work there and, and do what they do. 
And it was just like, where are we? And then we stayed the night at like a local Minshuku, like a family run guest house, um, had breakfast there the next morning. And then we realized like when noon came around the next day, as all these tour buses came in, that it was like a place for day trips. So to really get the experience spending a night there was totally worth it. Um, from there, back to Kanazawa, which we got back on the train, Osaka one night <laughs> for my birthday. Um, Happy was, birthday. Thanks. <laughs> Happy birthday. But I was saying it was a request for my birthday because that city was like none, like, but, you know, I saw, in terms of bigger cities, I saw Tokyo, Kyoto, and Osaka. And Osaka was definitely the odd one out. It's a place where like street vendors yell at you. It's and, the New like, Jersey of Japan. <laughs> <laughs> I completely, <laughs> if you're taking it as the derogatory kind of association with New Jersey, I totally disagree no, i think it's, it's the it's new york brassy. it's brassy and ballsy that's why i think it's the new york city of japan yeah and i wouldn't call tokyo but it's that. too small like it's is too small is it the small. new york city in the 70s of japan kind of yeah but it's <laughs> yeah. like osaka is like osaka and the rest of the japanese from what my friends in tokyo have told me is that they make they're sort of uncomfortable with how brash and aggressive the right, those there's, a, there's a, definitely a big cultural divide and kind of conflict between the tokyo and the and, and osaka vibe because like but there was just something so refreshing after being in very, especially we were in the countryside where it's even more pronounced, the kind of more reserved, polite, super hospitable, which is lovely. But then we go to Osaka where I just like, where we just kind of gorged on street food from like 4 p.m. until 2 in the morning. And, you know, everyone's kind of out. It was a Friday night, too. So you really got the vibe. But, you know, it's to kind of put it very bluntly, it's a place where you like you see kind of shady characters and you see prostitutes and what you happens see in like Osaka stays in Osaka. <laughs> it's very like it's got that. It's got Is that. Is it more of like a New Orleans? Sort of, type? but it doesn't have That's like the good. it doesn't have like the you know, New Orleans you also see like the old Spanish architecture and like these sites. Osaka doesn't have the sites, you know, you're not going there for the sites. And you're also going they're there most for polite like, as the New Is it like Vegas y? No, no, because no, it's still it is very authentic. It's very real. It's very it's just it's it's like a Southeast Asian city kind of more than it is a Japanese city. It feels like, you know, just mm -hmm. like a little bit more of that chaos, which was really nice. Um, and from there, we ended the trip in Kyoto, which is despite being 45 minutes on the bullet train from Osaka is like the complete opposite vibe. How would you describe Kyoto? So we did the main tourist sites. We did Kinkakuji, you know, the big golden pavilion. We did um, those famous, the famous the gates. Vermilion Gates, right? Yeah. Um, Which goes on forever. Forever. <laughs> we, we didn't make it to the top. It was because it, it was too crowded. It's especially, I don't know if it's a time of year, but it was just like a lot of tour buses and busloads. Yeah, I was there in the spring. Especially, less crowded. especially crowded, uh, yeah. Chinese tourists. Yeah. A lot of Chinese tourists in Kyoto when mm -hmm. we were there. And so the best experiences, we did the sites because we felt like we had to, kind of like if you're, you know, in Athens, you've, you have to do the Acropolis, you know. But the best experiences we had in Kyoto were like just kind of going rogue and going for a walk and then you just stumble upon something that was so beautiful, but it was so beautiful because you're the only ones looking at it, you know. Um, or like the Philosopher's Path at like sundown, which is like a famous kind of mile long route to walk along the canal that was just like stunning because partially because it was kind of like okay i'm not just doing the tourist rounds right now it felt very it felt very authentic um but yeah so it was a great whirlwind tour of a lot of sides of at least that island in japan the end okay <laughs> i was just <laughs> of, of my thing no i was yeah. just gonna say was 10 days enough i feel like no, not even close i mean even just for that i, I could have spent those 10 days in tokyo you know yeah. but in terms of like a kind of, you know, in colleges, your first year, they have like those survey courses where like, we're gonna teach you about all of Africa in, in one <laughs> semester, course of weekly 45 minute classes. It was kind of like that for like that island in Japan. It's like, that's kind of the 10, and we weren't like exhausted from transit because you don't get that way because you're in trains that are going 180 miles an hour. I think the Shinkansen is the height of civilized travel oh i think so too that is the most amazing thing convenience and, and like efficiency i mean we took many trains as you can tell from that itinerary we didn't get on a single train that didn't leave to the minute it was supposed to leave yeah like and I was, they clean I was, them every st they at least in tokyo they clean they come at on, tokyo they clean, they, them. they clean them yeah in, in like two minutes so that i can leave on time yeah, yeah. It's, it's really just astounding i think everyone who works 
on New York's MTA should be required to take oh, a trip Tokyo. to Tokyo. The subway is unbelievable. <laughs> could could we like throw in Penn Station as well? <laughs> yeah, please. We got to do a podcast on subways around the world and basically. But the routine of getting your bento box yeah, and getting so on great. the subway. And then, and then ordering like, an Asahi beer from yeah. the cart that goes yeah, by and you're just watching the countryside swoosh by. by. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we didn't get anywhere in this list. We had like 40 <laughs> places that we didn't talk about that everybody... You had. can tweet us. We'll tell you the bits we didn't talk about. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe we have to do part two, three, four, five. But let's draw to a close now. That's what we did on our summer vacations this year. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. We are on iTunes. We are on SoundCloud. Visit us on cntraveler.com. And uh, we are also at Condé Nast Traveler on Facebook and YouTube. CN Traveler on Instagram, Twitter, and the Snapchat. And please do tweet at us. Let us know what you did for your summer vacation. And send us feedback and review us on iTunes. Andrea, where can people give you their pie recommendations? Uh, you can tweet me or Instagram DM me at a little bit, um, both Twitter and Instagram. Best handle ever. Thank you. Seb. Uh, I'm at Seb Modek. Lale. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Lale Hanna and on Twitter at Lale Arikoglu. Mark. And you can find me on Twitter at Mark J. Elwood with a K and two L's. And I'm at Bradrick. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Thanks to all of you for sharing your summer experiences. And have a great weekend, everyone. Bye.